I really appreciate the encouraging music. Thank you to you all. And uh, I think we, I hear you better in here. I think we hear each other better in here singing, so that's an advantage of being here as well. And it's uh, Dad's Root Beer. I think there's a couple of other options there as well. So if you love Dad's Root Beer or Dad's Soda, then that's just a little message to you. We love Dad's. We love Dad's Root Beer, and we love you if you're a dad. So uh, please stop by before you leave today and pick up one of those bottles of Dad's. And uh, if you're a, if you're a father... And if you, uh, if there are any left, any remaining, and uh, if there's somebody here who would like to take an extra to your dad or grandfather, you're welcome to do that too. So uh, please keep that in mind. And also want to mention that um, with the up- upcoming outreach, uh, the uh, walking taco outreach that everybody's working on and, and being part of and planning, which we appreciate, uh, a while back, we shared with you that uh, Ryan McDonald, who is the community um, community coordinator at Oak Park Elementary right up here a couple of blocks away, had contacted us about some ways we could connect with the school and, and help out there. We're working on that, and, and hopefully he'll be coming here in August to share some details about how we can get involved there at the school. But uh, also, Gabriel's been in contact with him with a couple of things. First of all, uh, he has access to a lot of uh, hygiene items, toiletries items that students there can use. And Gabriel's been uh, getting those to Ryan to, to pass out. Uh, but then also, um, uh, Ryan is, is, is probably going to send out to their, um, their constituency, their students and families, an announcement about the walking taco event. Um, so in other words, the, the word is going to go out through the Oak Park Elementary School system of the event that, that we are holding here. So uh, that's a blessing. That's a, a little window of opportunity that God has provided for us here through the connections we've had with, uh, with Ryan and uh, Gabriel's connections there with him. And so praise the Lord for that and uh, continue to pray and be ready, right? I won't be here. Uh, we won't be here, but we'll certainly be praying for God to work through that time, so I want to mention that to you as well. Uh, our, uh, as you know, uh, we, my wife and I moved here from South Carolina six years ago, and we, we left our family behind. Uh, our uh, children are all adults, and they live in South Carolina and Georgia, and three of them are married. We have four grandchildren, and as teachers, we do get uh, some time that we can get away, and Christmas break and summer break is our opportunity to be with our family and to, to be involved in their lives and to have impact and influence on them. And so uh, we take advantage of that. And last summer, we actually spent a month down there uh, in June and July, and it worked really well. And so we planned ahead and scheduled to be down there this summer as well. And so that's, that's why uh, we won't be here for the next four weeks, and I do appreciate your understanding with that. I would also appreciate your prayer uh, for that, because um, if, you, if you have adult children, um, you know that uh, even though the day-to-day responsibilities of caring for their needs is over, um, you still carry burdens for them, and uh, some of them make choices and take directions in life that you wish and pray would be different. And so that's the case with some of our children. And so we, we want to be the right kind of influence in their lives as well as our, our grandchildren. Uh, the, the newest one is just uh, 
about three weeks old. I got to meet little Jude this past week, and uh, the oldest is six, I think. So they're, of course, at a very, uh, very important age. And we just want to be that, the right kind of influence in their lives. And so would you pray uh, for us for that? I appreciate that very much. Uh, and I'll be heading back down uh, tomorrow um, to be there. Uh, With that in mind, uh, a few months ago, I heard Mr. Andy Stearns, who is a Bible teacher at Faith Baptist Bible College, where I teach, heard him give a message in our school chapel that addressed the issue of um, people who who really don't believe in God at all. You might say they're atheist or or agnostic, And, and just really... I think helped our thinking on that and gave us a biblical understanding of that. And uh, I asked him if he would speak on that topic when uh, he speaks here uh, the next three weeks. And actually what he has done is he, he took that one message and he's actually expanded on that. And he's going to be preaching to you and teaching you from uh, some very important passages of Scripture on the topic of engaging unbelievers with the gospel. And that's what we want to do, isn't it? Engage unbelievers with the gospel. But with a specific focus on people who don't have any knowledge of Christianity. Are there people like that around you? Are there people like that around our church? Absolutely. People who have very little or no knowledge of Christianity or uh, people that would, again, claim to be atheists who just don't believe in God. So this is going to be a very helpful time of equipping for you. I asked him to do this very specifically, and I think it can be very helpful for us as we think about reaching uh, people who are without Christ around us. So I encourage you to come and, uh, and to have your hearts open to that and, and be praying for him as he prepares for that. And then the fourth Sunday that uh, I'm away, Dr. Dan Brown, who's been here before, uh, will be preaching for you. So I know you're going to be well um, fed from the word and encouraged and equipped and, and we'll be praying for God to work through those times. And we're going to go back to the book of Nehemiah today. So I'm going to invite you to go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm sharing with you on prayer that builds God's work. Prayer that builds God's work. And uh, again today, I'm not going to use slides. I do encourage you to listen well, to absorb what you can, and to ask the Holy Spirit to highlight for you what He wants you to really concentrate on and ways He wants you to grow through the message today. So if you're able to capture some points, that's, that's great, and I'll be saying some things that you'll consider as points, and you can certainly write those down, but I do encourage you just to have your mind and heart open to truth and to what God wants to do in, in your life and in us as a church. When circumstances converge and you sense an opportunity and something that you've hoped for happens and it seems to be right in front of you, what do you do? Let's say you've been trying to get a certain job and all of a sudden the, the offer for that job is, is right in front of you uh, or a promotion in the place where you work and all of a sudden you're being invited to do something new, something better, something maybe that pays more. What if you try out for a group or for a team and all of a sudden they say, yes, we'd like you to be part of our team or we want you to be in this group. What do you do when when those circumstances seem to open up in front of you? Maybe somebody's in a relationship with another person 
and have an acquaintance that, that you see could turn into a dating relationship, something long-term, and all of a sudden the possibility is right there in front of you. Do you leap at that? Or is there something else that you do first? Maybe you're thinking about a, a large, very weighty financial decision, like purchasing a car or even a house. And all of a sudden the possibility is right there in front of you. It could all come together. What do you do in that moment? Well, this is kind of like what happened to Nehemiah. What he wanted, what he had hoped for, what he had been praying for, all of a sudden opened up right in front of him. And I want us to see how he responded to that. So look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm actually going to start reading in in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, and then we will go down into chapter 2. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11 we, we looked at his prayer of confession last Sunday. Let's pick it up at verse 11, where he concludes his prayer. So Nehemiah 1, verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So... Nehemiah had prayed for this opportunity. He prayed that God would prosper him. And the word prosper means to succeed. It means to accomplish what, is, what he's hoping for, what he desires, what needs to happen. And he says, grant, grant even, he says, grant me mercy. Open the opportunity. Do something special. Show your favor and your kindness in this opportunity and is referring specifically to the king, Artaxerxes. And then he ends it, ends verse, uh, chapter 1, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now continue on, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Let's talk about what's going on here. Just to remind us, the Israelites are being held captive in Babylon. The year was 445, 445 B.C. Some of those Israelites had remained in the land of Israel. And some had traveled to Babylon and reported to Nehemiah the condition of the walls. And they were, they were broken down and they were burned. They were in terrible shape. And Nehemiah was grieved and he fasted and he prayed and he prayed this prayer of confession. And, and he ends with this notation, I was the king's cupbearer. The cupbearer was a position of great trust. It was a position of very significant responsibility. He not only chose and served the king's wine and made sure that it was safe. You know, we think of the guy who takes a little sip to make sure it's not poisoned, right? So that that was part of what he did. But he also controlled access to the king. He was like the king's number one one, uh, special guard. He was the one who controlled who had an opportunity to speak to the king. And in some cases, the cupbearer would actually become a trusted confidant, an advisor. So so here's Nehemiah. He knows he's in this position. He knows he needs to 
to have some kind of permission and provision from, from this great king who's in absolute authority. And, and now some time passes, right? He prayed that prayer we saw in chapter 1. And the time stamps in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 2 indicate that about four months had passed. So, so it goes from, uh, from about November to December, uh, November, December to, to March and April. So a few months pass, and Nehemiah had prayed this prayer, and he's waiting. I like this comment by Warren Wiersbe. He says, true faith in God brings a calmness to the heart that keeps us from rushing about and trying to do in our own strength what only God can do. And that's a good reminder for us personally, and that's a good reminder for us as a church, isn't it? When there is a great need, when there are opportunities in front of us, it's easy to just start rushing around and thinking, well, we've got to figure this out, we've got to plan this, we've got to set this up, and we have to pull this together and make this happen. I'm guilty of that. I often feel that way, like I have to make something happen. And there are times, there are times to, to do the work and to push and to, to, to organize and plan and, and facilitate and make things happen. There's a time for that. But here we find a man who, who prayed a very significant prayer and then he waited for the right opportunity. He was in the right position, but he was praying for that right opportunity. And this, this prayer that God would prosper him, I think, is the idea of, of to arrange the circumstances so that God's plan would unfold. And that, that's our prayer, right? God arrange circumstances, arrange circumstances in our individual lives as well as in the life of, of our church. Arrange the circumstances providentially, supernaturally, so that your will, your purpose can happen and unfold. But also, I think it's a, it's a prayer for for that, that providential intervention and arrangement of circumstances, but also it's a prayer for the energy to accomplish it. So God, guide us, and God, propel us. I think that's the essence of this prayer when he says in chapter 1 that, that you would let me prosper and, and allow all of this to, to unfold. So Nehemiah is in this place of very strategic possibility, but also a place of danger as well. There are Persian works of art from around the time that we're reading about here that, uh, that portray those who came into the king's presence, kings just like this king, those who came into his presence, and they would actually, these works of art depict people coming into the king's presence with their hand up over their mouth like this, right? Just kind of holding their hand up in front of their mouth as they approached the king and as they spoke to the king because they did not want to defile the king with their breath. I'm not sure if they had toothbrushes or toothpaste back then uh, or if it was a consideration of, of just, you know, anything that would touch the king coming from some person but, but there was this, this sense that even, even an individual's breath would be a threat to the king. And, of course, we know that, that the king could not only dismiss somebody from his presence, but actually give the order off with his head. So that, that was a very real possibility. 
So, so cupbearers, people in Nehemiah's position, were very careful of not only who they let in, but also their own manner around the king, not to give off a vibe that would upset him in any way. So, that helps us understand the king's comment in verse 2. Why is your face sad since, since you're not sick? He's saying, what's wrong with you? And in that question, there is a potential threat, even to Nehemiah's life. So this could have gone one of two ways. It could have given Nehemiah an opportunity to speak about what was burdening him, about the broken down condition of the walls of Jerusalem, or it could have taken a tragic turn. So that's why it says at the end of verse 2, I became dreadfully afraid. He's being honest here. He's saying, my life was at stake. It could have gone either way. This could have had a really good outcome or a tragic outcome. He's saying, I was as scared as you could be. He's saying, I was absolutely terrified. But then he spoke honestly. He didn't act like everything was okay. He didn't say, oh, I'm fine, it's fine, no, no worries, no problem. Look at what he says in verse 3. So I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. So he starts out by showing respect for the king. May the king live forever. This would have been a typical way for people just to show their proper respect for the king. But then he he told the king about his concern. And, And sources about this text indicate that the way that Nehemiah presented the problem was done in a way that the king would actually appreciate. He didn't say my nation. He didn't say the people of Israel or Jerusalem, the city, are in trouble. He didn't initially present it that way. He says, the place of my father's tombs lies waste. And in doing that, what he was doing was not talking so much about the nation or the city, but about his family and about his ancestors and their place of burial. Because for the Persian people, ancestry was highly valued. One source says ancestral tombs were universally respected throughout the ancient Near East, especially among the nobility and royalty. Nehemiah was presenting his case in a way that Artaxerxes can sympathize with. He he was being shrewd, and there was nothing wrong with that. He wasn't being fake or, or false or manipulative. He was being wise in how he presented this request. Remember, Nehemiah hoped and prayed for an opportunity. And he was watching and he was waiting and looking for how God was going to prosper him, to open the way for him and and to move him forward. And he was in a position by God's sovereign plan to facilitate relief and aid for his people, and the king had opened the door for him to raise the issue. Now again, once Nehemiah spoke, could have gone either way. The king's next words could have been positive for Nehemiah, or they could have led to a tragic end. And Nehemiah is a little bit dramatic, I think, in the way he tells this story. He elevates the tension. He says, 
Then the king said to me, what do you request? Okay, so it's like, oh, good. Okay, so far, so good, right? Every step is another opportunity. And we need to understand how significant this was for Nehemiah. This was the opportunity of a lifetime. And now the king didn't just crack the door. Now he swings that door wide open for Nehemiah. Now let's take this moment to to just pause and again think about the question that I started with. What is your response when everything lines up? When the door is open and it looks like you should move forward as an individual or as a church? The opportunity you've been waiting for, praying for, hoping for is right in front of you. Our, Our natural instinct is to act and to seize that desired for objective to say yes to sign the paperwork post it on social media and celebrate that's our natural response in many cases what did nehemiah do look in verse four and just tell me out loud what he did what did nehemiah do he prayed exactly he prayed now think about this, because, again, as you, as you envision him in the presence of the king, and this back and forth takes place, and each moment bears a load of tension and, and potential for one outcome or another outcome, and now there's maybe, maybe just a, a beat of time. He can't wait too long, because, again, that could be dangerous for him. Maybe it's a, the time it takes to, to breathe. Maybe it's just about a second that he prays. He doesn't leave, doesn't say, can you hold it right there for a second? I'll be back. He just in, immediately raises his heart to God. Now, this is where we, we don't know. We don't know exactly what he prayed in that moment. But he spoke from his heart to God. And I'm just going to use my imagination a little bit. I think it could have been, based on everything else around this text, his previous prayers, I think it might have been something like this. Thank you, God. This is it. Help me say the right thing and make a way for your work to succeed. And again, I'm just speculating. But it could have been something like that. Thank you, This is it. Here we go. Help me in the moment, in this moment, say the right thing and make a way for your work to succeed. I think here's another challenge for us. Here's another searching question for us to consider. Do you have the kind of relationship with God where you can pray split-second prayers? Now, we don't have to earn or work our way into God's favor as Christians. We don't have to follow some kind of lengthy formula to to gain access into God's throne room as we pray. He's our Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit indwells believers. But but there is something about being in the kind of, of continuing and warm, conscious fellowship with God to where you know You're not like a stranger coming into God's presence. You're not like the the kid that just asks his dad for money and never contacts him any other time, right? You're you're, you're the son, you're the daughter who has an ongoing fellowship and communion 
with your Heavenly Father. And it's very natural for you to say, Father, and you can just pray a split-second prayer. You can do that if you're saved. You can do that when you're on, on familiar ground, when you have the practice of praying. You can do it any time as a child of God, but, but as you walk with Him, you have that consciousness and that comfort that you can pray those immediate prayers. And there are times to do that. I'm, I'm putting a label on His prayer here. And I'm not sure that this so much comes from the text itself, but I want to, to, to make this an application for us. So as we talk about prayer for building God's work, that's our overall theme. Last week we talked about a prayer of confession. I want to label this one a prayer for direction. A prayer for direction. Because I, I think, I would infer from this that that's what was in Nehemiah's heart. Lord, direct me in this moment in what to say, and direct us as your people. So, so open the opportunity and propel us forward. Give us the, the, the providential direction that we need and the opportunity that we need and the energy that we need to move forward. So I'm, I'm calling it, I'm labeling it a prayer for direction. It includes a request for permission Look in verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight. Again, very respectful, very humble. I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So, so this prayer for direction includes some requests. It includes a request for permission. Would you allow me to return for the purpose of rebuilding... Jerusalem, and give me the time, give me the time frame that I will need for this. Then, uh, in, verse, in verse 6, then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So now, he's asking for, um, I'm sorry, in verse 7, Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. So now he's asking for authorization. So he asked for permission to return and also the time frame in which to do it. And then he asks for authorization. He asks for the permission that he needs to go and the authorization to make it official so that no one will be able to stop him. And then he asks for provision in verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. All right, so here are his requests. Permission, authorization, and provision. Go big or go home, right? He just asks for everything. He is confident in his God. I'm sure he was concerned for himself, but he was confident in God. He trusted God. He had prayed for God to prosper them. And now here's the the possibility. And he says, all right, I'm going to make the big ask. And he does. It still could have gone either way. Nehemiah wrote this down in a way that anyone over the ages 
would be able to understand what happened. Look at what he recorded at the end of verse 8. And the king, so Artaxerxes and all that he represents, the king granted them to me. Now, if he had stopped there, it would have been correct. I was there, right place, right time. There was the opportunity. God answered prayer, and I made the request, and it happened. But look at what he highlights. Look at how he emphasizes this. The king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He is giving testimony for all the ages, for every person who would ever read his journal about what happened to say, God did this. God was the one who made it happen. And, King says, evidently, it shall be done. (laughs) Yes, he gave him what he requested. I think there are some lessons here that we can understand about praying for building God's work and specifically prayer for direction. Here's one lesson. God uses people to accomplish his plan, but let's qualify that. Let's, let's make it a little more specific. God uses people to accomplish his plan. We would say he uses godly people like Nehemiah. But he can even use unbelieving people, can't he? He, he can even use powerful, governmental, we might call it, political figures and leaders who are the furthest thing from being godly to help facilitate his plan because he is sovereign. So, so lesson number one, God uses people and even unbelieving people to accomplish his plan. And this reminds me of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, right? He says, God's hand was on me. God's hand was in this. And here, Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So we have a God who can work through individuals, any individual in any position that he chooses because he is in control. He is sovereign. And he's interested in what's happening in his work and his cause. Now, I want to show you something. Now, we're just going to touch on this, but go with me to Daniel chapter 9, the book of Daniel chapter 9. Because, you see, without even knowing it, this king, Artaxerxes, in 445 B.C., was fulfilling prophecy. He was doing exactly what God had said would happen for his people, the Jewish people. And I want to show it to you. So look at Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. Now, if you've studied biblical prophecy, you may have been exposed to this passage, or if you've studied the book of Daniel, and it gets pretty intricate, and I'm not going to try to chase down all the the details of this. I'll just make a few comments as we read through. But this is God's timetable, God's time frame for His unfolding plan over the ages, the ages of the Old Testament history we're looking at, but also into the future where we have not yet been. All right, so look with me at Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, and I'll show you the link to Nehemiah in just a second. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, so the Jewish people and Jerusalem, 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's God's plan for the ages in one verse right there. There it is, all right? Know therefore and understand, verse 25, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Basically, he's talking about sets of years. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, in that verse, do you recognize anything that might connect, that might link us to what happened when Nehemiah asked the king to let him go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls? Well, there it is in verse 25. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. He's talking about what Artaxerxes did. So there's a direct link from this prophecy to what Artaxerxes unknowingly, unwittingly did according to the the grand plan of God. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, probably referring to his crucifixion, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now we're getting into what's known as the tribulation, the great tribulation out in the future. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, so this is God speaking through Daniel, laying out his plan for all of time to bring to his people and all people the Savior, the Deliverer, Christ, the one who would be anointed as the King, even his crucifixion, but also his resurrection and the opportunity for people to come to know Christ and his kingdom, which would last forever. It's all there. And what Nehemiah requested and Artaxerxes did fulfilled one very important link in that. So so what do we see here? We see that, that people and circumstances are all flowing together to fulfill God's purpose. Now let's bring that right to us today. Yes, God did have a purpose and plan for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, all of that. And that has unfolded to some degree and still has yet much to unfold and to happen in the future. Does God have a plan and a purpose for you and me now and for this group of people and for his active work right now in the world through the church, Jesus Christ, the church that Jesus Christ is building? And of course the answer is yes, isn't it? That grand plan is still unfolding and you and I are right in the middle of it. So there's great hope in that. We derive confidence from that. There is encouragement in that. He still has a great purpose and we are in the age of the church and the church is part of this plan and we can have confidence in what God is doing. God is using people to accomplish His plan. He uses significant figures like Artaxerxes. He uses unbelievers. He uses people in our community. He uses the the, the man at Oak Park Elementary School. He he uses individuals that, that you and I have contact with and people that we might pray for. Some believers, even some unbelievers, to see His work go forward. 
And we can pray for that as we pray for direction. Another lesson is this. We should all pray before we act or speak. We should pray before we act or speak. And I'm especially thinking of opportunities, decisions, tense situations. Nehemiah is an example for us to pray before we act or speak. When we're doing something important, something that's hard, when we are facing an opportunity, oh, this looks good, here we go, wait a minute. Lord, help me do the right thing here. Lord, give me direction. If I should stop, help me know that I should stop. If I should move forward, propel me forward. When you're facing pressures, whether it's work, school, family, there's some some pressure, something stressful, something that's just difficult. You know, sure, we should spend lengthy times in prayer, but there's a time to just say, Lord, here I go into this meeting. Here I go into this class. Here I am with this person. Ah, or, or here I am having this, this disagreement. It's turning into an argument with a family member or a friend. Or just help me. Help me right now. One second. One beat. One breath. Lord, just help me. Would you help me right now? Would you give me direction? <laughs> this weekend has been one of the, the most uh, miserable weekends for air travel in our country. And because of weather and staffing issues and all this stuff, hundreds and hundreds, you may have seen on the news, of flights are getting canceled. And and my in traveling here, I was supposed to arrive here Friday night. So I, I uh, my flight from the Atlanta airport to Charlotte, North Carolina was delayed because of all this. And because of that, I missed my connection in, in Charlotte and had to come the rest of the way yesterday, which it all turned out fine. Have you ever heard or, or seen, maybe you've seen a video or something of a person in a situation like that where the flights are canceled or having some kind of stressful situation? And by the way, people are being sitting in an airport like the whole day, spending the night in the airport, you know, just, just, just completely everything's just canceled. Have you ever seen a person having a meltdown? shrieking and screaming and swearing. So there was a lady, one gate over from mine. I couldn't see her, but that's what was going on. Top of her lungs, shrieking and screaming and swearing at the airport personnel for minutes. This was on probably three, went on for about three or four minutes. Now, a lot of us maybe felt that way. <laughs> okay, let's be honest, right? So maybe we're like, oh, yeah, that's how I feel. But to do that, right, that, that's just a... Uh, an uncontrolled explosion of frustration and anger. I'm assuming that was an unbeliever. I'm assuming that person was was not a Christian, was not saved, was not under the control of the Holy Spirit, right? But but it shows what people are capable of in facing a pressure-filled situation, just unloading a volcano of, of wrath and anger on somebody. Now, sadly, this happens in homes, it happens in workplaces, it happens in schools, all kinds of settings as well. But there it was, the stress and the pressure and the unmet expectations and the anger just, just erupted. That's what's in people's hearts. Boy, is it important for us when faced with pressure situations and problems is to say, wait a minute, 
I'm not going to be controlled by my flesh in this situation. I don't want to do my own thing and just, just try to, to control or, or, or to um, bring some kind of, inflict some kind of vengeance on somebody else by my words or my actions. Hold on. Lord, would you just be in control of me? Would you help me? Would you direct me? Would you just, just give me your peace? I can just rest in you in this situation. We should pray before we act or speak. Be anxious. I'm going to use the word stressed. Be stressed for nothing. But in everything by what? Tell me. Prayer. And specifically supplication, which is requests. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Whether it's problems or frustrations or opportunities or decisions, we should pray before we act or speak. The third lesson is this. God orders, excuse me, what God orders, he provides for. What God orders, he provides for. God had promised the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He promised that. It's in writing. Nehemiah asked God for safe passage and millions of dollars worth of materials. Did God answer his prayer? He sure did. What God orders, he provides for. And there are many ways we could apply this to our lives. Personally, you're seeking God's direction. You're pursuing God's will. You're on his path. You're fulfilling his purpose. He'll provide for you. As a church, if we are fulfilling his purpose, if we are aligned with what he is doing, he will provide. You've seen that happen already. And there are more ways that God can provide as well. And then, one more lesson. Prayer results in direction. Prayer results in direction for God's work. We pray for direction. God gives it. Nehemiah prayed for direction. And God gave it. He opened the way for him and he propelled him right through it. And the same is true for you. The same is true for our church. I love how Nehemiah gave the credit to God that we see at the end of verse 8. The good hand of my God upon me. Numerous times in the book of Ezra, previous to this book, as well as the book of Nehemiah, all of it about the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, we see this phrase, the good hand of God. Well, Good means favorable, right? Positive, productive, helpful. What is this idea of God's hand on us? It it represents God's intervention, and we might say a transfer of his power. God's hand on our lives or in our ministry is an indication of his intervention But beyond that, a transfer of his power. 1 Chronicles 29.12 says that in Yahweh's hand is power and might. Isaiah said God's hand is not short or weak is the idea, but mighty. God's power, God's might. 
It was by God's hand, Exodus 13 says, that he delivered Israel from Egypt. Psalm 8, 6 says it was by his hand he created the world. Psalm 37, 24 says he upholds and guides, upholds and guides the righteous with his hand. So God's hand represents His power to create, to deliver, to uphold, and to guide. And as one commentary says, this is a striking expression of God's favor. It denotes God's help and grace that rest on a person or a congregation. Do we need God's hand in His work here? Yes, we do. God applied His power to Nehemiah's efforts. In the same way, we need God's hand. How do we get it? A sure way to have it is to pray. Circumstances may be ideal. We may be strategically positioned for success. Doors of opportunity may open. But to fulfill God's greater purpose and for Him to receive the credit as He deserves, we must have His hand on us. Uh, A familiar name in the area or on the topic of prayer is E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds was a minister from Missouri who lived in the 18 and 1900s. And as a pastor, E.M. Bounds led prayer meetings for his congregation that sometimes lasted for hours. And I want to, to end with this Quotation, emphasizing the importance and the absolute necessity of prayer for God to work in a church. Will you listen? He said this, What the church needs is not more or better machinery. I don't think he was talking about uh, machinery as in uh, something that, that runs and operates and functions mechanically. I think he's talking about strategies, meetings, plans, having a smoothly running operation. And again, there's a place for those. But he says, what what we need is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men. Men whom the Holy Spirit can use. Men of prayer. Now let me pause and insert something here. I don't know if he meant men as in males. Not sure if that's what he meant. But let's talk about that for a second. We should all be praying, right? But does the scripture in the New Testament identify men, male individuals in the church, as those who should specifically be involved in prayer in the life of the church? Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So not only men, not just men should pray, but in the life of the church, men should definitely be leading the way in prayer. So, men... Would you pray? Would you pray for God's direction in the life of your church? Ian Bounds went on to say, 
The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. He knew the secret of God's hand on the church, didn't he? And we can all learn from men like him. Let's quietly bow. Commune with God in your heart. I am going to pray. I'm going to ask each of you to engage in your heart in prayer to the Lord. God, would you ignite in this church a burden for prayer? Would you remind each member of the need for prayer? Would you truly help each of us to plan for prayer? Would you prompt us in those moments when we need to pray? When we might neglect to pray, but we need to pray. Would you, by your Spirit, move each of us toward more purposeful times of prayer and toward those instantaneous split-second prayers? Would you encourage us with your promises? Would you help us, Father, not to each have our own agenda or expectation for our church, but to each submit and align our purposes with you, with your purpose, your grand unfolding purpose for the ages and your specific purpose for this local church and help us to do it in prayer. And Father, like, uh, like Paul said of Epaphras, who was away from the people of Colossae for a time, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in Christ that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And that you would continue working in each one's life toward maturity through their individual walk with you, through the fellowship of believers here at Northridge, through the messages from Andy Stearns and Dr. Dan Brown and all the spiritual influences that you bring into the life of this church over the next month, that each one would grow toward and stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. We pray these things and entrust you to fulfill them according to your will and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.